Are you a racist? That can be a shocking question. How about something more unique? Are you an anaplactivist? Do you want to know what one is? Keep listening to find out. In this episode, Sarah Olaminick interviews Drew Hart and Shane Petty about racism in Christ's church and in the Church of the Brethren. But first, some Dunker Punk music by Jacob Krauss. I don't want to be rich, don't want to be popular, don't want to be selfish, no. I don't want to be a goat, don't want to be ignorant, don't want to be blindfolded, I just want to be countercultural. be violent, don't want to have a vendetta, don't want to be vengeful, no. I don't want to be a soldier, don't want to be militaristic, don't want to help that cycle, I just want to be a countercultural pacifist. I don't want to be a racist, don't want to be a capitalist, don't want to be sexist, no. I don't want to pass judgment, don't want to hold grudges, don't want to be hateful, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. I don't want to shop at Walmart, don't want to grow Monsanto, don't want to drink Coca-Cola, no. I don't want to burn petrol, don't want to eat perfect fruit, don't want to feel guilty, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving organic gardener. I want to be authentic, I want to be radical, I want to be optimistic, honest, beautiful, I want to be humble, I want to be progressive, I want to be open, I'm inspiration, I want to be like John Wesley, or Sarah Major, or Anna Mao, I want to be like Martin Luther, or Martin Luther King Jr., like Santa Claus, Johnny Appleseed, Dirk Dillon, or Gandhi, Alexander Mack, John Klein, George Fox, Jesus Christ, but mostly, I just want to be me. I just want to be me. Welcome to the second episode of the Dunker Punks podcast. We are nonviolent and nonconformist Anabaptists sharing audio accounts of following Jesus to God's revolutionary reality. We seek truth to spread love and stand up for the marginalized. I'm your host, Pastor Nancy Fitzgerald, and today we hear from Sarah Ullaminick, a sophomore at Juniata College who interns as the Youth Peace Coordinator at On Earth Peace. Sarah presents a challenging and timely topic on racism. Is Christ Church racist? Should it be? I didn't know what an anablactivist was until Sarah interviewed Pastor Drew Hart in this episode. She follows Drew with an interview with Pastor Shane Petty. Shane is both fired up for Christ and passionate about social justice, a dynamite combination for dunker punks everywhere. 
I'm sure you will have thoughts to share on this episode, so get your Snapchat and Twitter feeds open and ready while I get out of the way so you can listen. Hey, this is Sarah Olaminick, Youth Peace Coordinator Intern for On Earth Peace, and this is the first of On Earth Peace's contributions to the Dunker Punk podcast series. The On Earth Peace podcasts are going to really focus on the question of when does the need for inclusion supersede the importance of tradition? And so that question is based on the scripture in Acts 10 and 11, where Peter is receiving visions from God that really challenge the traditional views of what is and isn't pure. And so Peter eventually concludes that God is telling him that this new method of inclusion is more important than what had traditionally been deemed acceptable. Uh, So we're going to go more in depth with that scripture in future episodes, so definitely stay tuned for that. We're also really going to keep in mind the guiding question of, What does it mean to live out Jesus' calling in a changing world, both as a church and as an individual? So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about structural racism in institutions of faith. So we have two really great interviews with Drew Hart and Shane Petty that you'll get to hear today, which are going to cover issues of structural racism in the Christian church in general, and also talk more specifically um, about structural racism within the Church of the Brethren. So let's get started. Um, First, we're going to hear from Drew Hart. Drew is a writer, speaker, Ph.D. candidate in theology and ethics, and self-proclaimed Anablacktivist. He lives in northwest Philadelphia and has done a lot of study on the interplay of black theology and Anabaptism. He also has a Master's of Divinity with an urban concentration from Biblical Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, Hey, Drew. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, It's really great to have you here. Um, so on your blog, you're a self-proclaimed Anablacktivist, uh, and so I wondered if we could just start off by um, explaining kind of what like what that term means. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Sarah. And um, Anablacktivist basically is a term that is basically trying to communicate three things. First, it's trying to um, well, it's trying to bring in two different traditions together. Really, it's trying to bring in Anabaptism. And black theology together and kind of smush them all into one and then really emphasize the activism of it. So that's really what anablacktivism is. It's anabaptism plus black theology plus activism um, all together and thinking about how does that inform our Christian lives and our engagement in society. And is that a term that you came up with yourself or that you found somewhere else? Um, complicated. So it was a term actually the friends coins for me, and then I <laughs> started using it afterwards because um, I thought it was kind of cool. Um, so I didn't actually make up the word, but it was it was someone was trying to describe me, and I thought it was fitting, and it's kind of grown from there. That's yeah. awesome. Um, so what are some ways that you've seen or noticed white supremacy influencing Anabaptist theology? Yeah, I mean. Honestly, I think some of the critiques have come from um, from within the camp itself, at least in terms of some concerns. I've seen uh, pieces written online, people asking, you know, is is Anabaptism a, a, a discourse just for white men? You know, I've seen pieces like that. Um, but I think that um, in historic Anabaptist groups, we're talking about like Church of the Brethren, Mennonites, you know, Brethren in Christ. Um, there's a clear, what I call... Um, the proper Anabaptist, right? Or the proper Anabaptist body or name or whatever. Um, And so so what you see uh, 
pretty quickly once you begin to explore a little bit is that uh, throughout the d different denominations, throughout the different organizations and institutions, um, folks who have that right lineage, right, that right name, um, who understands, you know, they can play the name games and all that stuff appropriately, um, they're all at the top of the institutions and are running these institutions um, and are given preference and advantage. Um, and in some ways you could say at the center of these institutions and communities and organizations that they were intended for them and they belong very well in these institutions. So, so I think that there's a lot of challenges there in terms of um, taking ownership of the fact that yes, this, these are traditions that were born on the margins um, but now, in what ways are we also benefiting from whiteness in the broader society and then mimicking those same patterns in our own communities, just whether it be Church of the Brethren, Mennonite, Brethren in Christ. Um, I call it, so in the Mennonite circles, I say it's ethnic Mennonite supremacy, right? Um, but it is this way in which, you know, there's preference and a hierarchy that's built into these communities. Yeah. So it's, it's exclusionary at some level exclusionary or or at least I think hierarchy is a good word right so so I think um, like you you will find or you can in some of the communities you can find like communities of color and things like that but how they move and belong within these communities um, and what kind of glass ceilings exist right and um, and is there ever a sense in which they feel like they ever fully belong or are they always kind of like second class Church of the Brethren, second class Mennonite? Because we know what, in our minds, the stereotype of what an actual Church of the Brethren person looks like or what an actual Mennonite looks like. And it's not usually the Hispanic or black person that might have also grown up in a, Hispan in a Church of the Brethren or Mennonite church. Um, so you are set to release a new book in January, um, Trouble I've Seen, The Way the Church Views Racism. Uh, do you think that there are themes in that book that would relate to this conversation or this discussion? Um, yes and no. I mean, so the book itself is not um, directly or explicitly trying to be an anablactivist book, at least outwardly, though certainly that is the framework from which I write. Um, but what the book is trying to do, which will be helpful, I think, for all Christians, it's trying to help us think more deeply about what race and racism actually are. I think that we have a very thin definition of race, a thin understanding. So, you know, um, everyone thinks that they're an expert on race and we think it's common sense, right? Um, and then usually our common sense understanding is, you know, something simple like defining it as um, hating someone else or prejudice, right? And that's pretty the extent of how we think about, you know, what racism is. Um, but I want to push the church, especially to think, have a thicker definition of racism. And so I would, you know, urge people to take up a definition that looks a little more uh, similar to what you find in sociology departments. I think that in those departments, they have a much thicker, broader, comprehensive understanding of race and racism. And so what I try to do in the book is bring some of those insights, but kind of bring it down to earth and also bring insights from theology and theological ethics and bring them down to earth and tell accessible stories and examples. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do is 
uh, move away from just merely talking in the church about us bridging the divide of race, right? That's usually the language I always heard, right? If we need to bridge the divide, and so we think we need more pulpit swaps, and we need, you know, just sheer space and more proximity together, and then everything will just fall away, and we'll sing Kumbaya together and be happy. Um, but I don't think it actually works that way, and I think one of the reasons is because we don't think we don't understand what race and racism actually are. So one example I, I give is, you know, if you think historically about slaves and slave masters, literally in a house, right? You could have slaves working in a house, caring for kids, cooking. I mean, these are intimate relationships, right? Very intimate, close proximity is there. But what existed, despite all of that, is racial hierarchy. Right. That remains even in the midst of the proximity and the intimacy of that relationship. Um, and it was that failure to have, a, I would say, a Christian view of being able to see others as fully human. Right. And allow the racial hierarchy to continue on that I think needs to be addressed. Racial hierarchy, white supremacy. I think those are the things that we need to be able to talk about um, theologically and as Christians and think about what does our faith actually say and how does it help us um, navigate out of these issues. Um, so that's really, really what the book is trying to do. It's trying to help us think theologically and work through racial hierarchy and how it shapes um, both black, white, and as well as other racial minority groups. Um, and, the, and specifically to the church. This is not a book for the society as, as a whole. This is a book for the church to recover what it means to be the church. So what advice would you give to young people, um, perhaps particularly white young people within the church, who want to engage in theological discussions in a way that doesn't perpetuate white supremacy? Yeah, I mean, I think that the largest thing is is a sense of humility as we enter into theological conversations and explore. I think, you know, so I do some adjunct teaching. Uh, now, this only happened once, but I had one class. I was teaching a theology one course, and um, and I had four books. Two of them were African-American authors. One was male, one was a female. And then we had uh, one uh, author that was a white male. And then a fourth book, which was called Postcolonial Evangelical Conversations, which it literally is global like voices from like all over the world, right? Different continents and all. Um, and I got some complaints, just a couple, but it still bothered me, I guess. It doesn't matter how many they are. Because um, uh, one, one student for his review said, this was supposed to be a, a basic theology course, not a black theology course. Um, and so for him, you know, having two out of the four books by African-American authors was clearly too much, right? Um, and, and so I think there's a sense in which what is appropriate theology and, and theology that we need to like be grounded in is white people's theology, European theology, Western theology, um, and everybody else is kind of supplementary, right, to that. And so I think um, what that does, it's like an idolatry of whiteness, even in theology itself, right? That's at the center, and everything else is kind of can be sprinkled around it. Um, and so long as we don't disturb that, then we're doing theology the right way. Um, and I think that we need to have some more humility, especially in light of all these issues. What would it look like to not think that our communities have everything to teach, but maybe let's see what can we learn, like take up the posture of learner, I think, first and foremost. I mean, we're talking about Christian engagement here, giving, receiving, and sharing. And usually what happens is is that communities of color 
are are receiving quite a bit. There's this engagement that has always been happening, but it's usually one way. Um, and so what would it look like for um, young white folks seeking to recover? I think it would take seriously the voices of others, um, prioritize them. I mean, I imagine if most people were to go and look at their bookshelves um, and look at you know who's represented, I imagine that you know for most people, even sometimes racial minorities, right? It's 99% white men, right? Um, what would it look like to, to really radically um, shake up how we go about, you know, who we listen to, um, who we don't, and, and, and even think about why we don't. And then I would say a step further, I mean, that's just intellectual, right? Reading. Um, but then, you know, I think a big part of learning and growing is also has to be embodied. So we have to think about, you know, where do I place my body, right? Um, there's places that we all know racially, so to speak, we don't say it, but there's places in which we feel like we belong and we don't belong, right? Whether it be certain neighborhoods, whether it be certain churches, even sometimes where we go shopping and just very simple everyday stuff um, that, that our lives are racially managed and organized um, beyond even our own awareness because we're just socialized into it. So I think we need to embody um, and in that going into different places, we begin to see things from a different perspective. Um, uh, but it's going to take some intentionality and some risk and some awkwardness, right? It's feeling like I don't know what's happening here and that's okay, right? Or feeling like I might say something wrong and offensive and you may and very well and that's going to be okay so long as you stick with it and work through. Um, but I think that those are some of the challenges that I think um, that we have. That I think that if we can um, begin to find new ways to come together outside of just, you know, singing kumbaya, but breaking, breaking, seeking intentionally to subvert the racial hierarchy and to not be a puppet to the racial management that goes on in our society. I think that uh, we can really begin to see things from a different perspective and think about Christian life from a different perspective as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. So once again, that was Drew Hart. If you would like to connect with him, you can follow him on Twitter at Drew Hart, and that's D-R-U-H-A-R-T. Uh, you can visit his blog, Taking Jesus Seriously. Just Google it in his name, you'll find it. Um, or you can check out his book that's coming out in January, so really, really soon. And again, that's called Troubles I've Seen, The Way the Church Views Racism. Next up, I got to interview Shane Petty. And Shane is the Associate Pastor for Outreach and Discipleship at Potsdam Church of the Brethren in Ohio, and he's currently a Bethany Seminary student studying intercultural ministry. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's really great to be able to speak with you. So how have you experienced um, or seen structural racism manifesting itself uh, in the Church of the Brethren or in other institutions of faith? Yeah, so this is a big, a big one, um, and there are probably more uh, examples of this than we have time for. Um, and certainly, I will bring a particular perspective that if you lined up a dozen um, persons of color mm -hmm. uh, who are associated with the Church of the Brethren, they may have different um, views. We may have like a Venn diagram where there are things that I'm experiencing that. Um, same as Arpia maybe isn't, or it can be a Kettering isn't, but then there will probably be a, a piece in the center where we could all uh, 
So just, mm-hmm. I think it's important to note that we're all shaped by our own yeah. perspectives. Absolutely. Um, but for, for me, I really see four main areas that I find particularly troublesome. Um, the, the first first being a lack of persons of color represented in denominational leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to the Elgin offices, for instance, um, we have a staff that on that level um, includes one person of color, um, one, right. and their job specifically is intercultural ministry. So we have one brown staff who's the staff for brown people. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty yeah. big deal, right? So um, the fact that there's only one is sad. Um, and frustrating, but that that one, their job is segregated right. to dealing with the concerns of brown people, um, or in perhaps the most generous, educating Anglo persons mm-hmm. about brown people. Um, we don't have a person of color, an ethnic minority, who's serving in um, an area of the church at that level a generic sort of ministry role like discipleship and spirituality, um, mission and service, n- mm-hmm. none of those areas. And so I, there's also Winnie McFadden, um, who is the head of Brethren Press, I believe is Asian. And so we do have that uh, second person of color, but still in terms of having an equitable staff in terms of racial identity, there's still a huge discrepancy or disparity, um, you know, a deficit in terms of being truly multi-ethnic. So that, that's, that's a big deal, I think. I think you also see that in, in the seminary. So we're being served by a seminary that has, as of yet, not proven itself, um, to be Mm anti-racist, um, so, I mean, at, at the seminary, we have we have no faculty or staff who are persons of color. Really? No. Not, not a single one. Wow. Um, even in the ways where Bethany has staff or faculty that are focused on issues that pertain especially to racial issues or um, cultural issues, cultural competency, they have white faculty and staff. Um that's a pretty big deal, especially yeah. because it's the Church of the Brethren's only seminary. This is the place mm-hmm. that you can go if you want to be educated from a particularly and uniquely COB point of view right. and perspective. And, you know, in spite of, you know, these difficulties in regards to the seminary, you know, there are, you know, glimmers of hope. There are positive um, things that are happening, um, you know, I'd just like to mention that there are, you know, exciting things happening right now at the seminary, driving, trying to move toward an anti-racist curriculum of instruction, as well as more intentional recruitment of persons of color. These things from the staff at the denominational level and at the seminary really stem from a bigger issue, which is being served by a denominational governance structure mm-hmm. that 
doesn't have mechanisms to enforce annual conference statements. I mean, really, the structure creates a system in which annual conference statements typically come with very little weight anyway. But then there are no real mechanisms for enforcing those things. So take the 1991 Black Americans paper. I mean, this is has information, has has recommendations that we just don't have. Mm-hmm. I mean, talking about ministry in urban areas, we therefore recommend to the general board that the urban ministry staff position be restored to full-time status. So this reflects a time in which there was a part-time urban ministry staff person and the delegate body, um, and this is the report of the committee okay. on brethren and black Americans, um, but since it's affirmed by the delegate body, you could probably say it's the delegate body speaking as, as well. But mm-hmm. um, it's saying that that position needs to be restored to full-time status. We now don't even have even a part-time in urban really? ministry staff person. We have no staff person. Um, and, and when was that When was that passed or when was that affirmed? 1991. Wow. 1991. And it's 2015. Yeah. It's 2015. It also says in this paper, we therefore recommend to the general board is now the mission and ministry board that a black person be added to the general board staff full time with responsibility for black ministries, including the recruitment and nurturing of black leadership and for black church development. Talks about theological education. We therefore recommend that Bethany Seminary pursue a policy of intentional recruitment of black Americans Mm -hmm. and other people of color seek qualified faculty from among black Americans and other people of color and include the religious history and heritage of non-white persons in the curriculum Mm -hmm. 14 years ago. Wow. 14 years ago. So to me, like we can talk about the frustrations Mm -hmm. about denominational leadership. We can even talk about the frustrations at seminary level, but both of these to me, stem from an annual conference system that there's no accountability. Yeah. There's absolutely no accountability. It's, it's almost like it's compartmentalized, sort of. Yeah. Uh, this sort of advocacy, progressive attitude is sort of separated from how we actually kind of live out the life of our church. Certainly. And things are compartmentalized in that... I'll just speak from the black experience, um, but I think it's, it's in my in my interactions with many Hispanics, I think this could be true for them as well. Mm-hmm. But for for the white church, there's this dichotomy, whether it's false or not, is for another discussion. Where there are mainline churches and evangelical churches, so there are progressive churches and conservative churches. But in the black church, that's just like not really the case typically i mean and now this is a generalization but typically black christians don't fit into either of those categories typically they believe things that on the surface are very conservative and evangelical Mm -hmm. if you go to most black churches or if you go even to churches that aren't historically black and you talk to black christians they're typically have a high rate of belief in orthodox christian things the Mm -hmm. trinity heaven hell um a need to be 
expressive form of worship, even right. if they're Baptist, they're likely influenced by Pentecostalism, mm-hmm. a desire to share the gospel. But at the same time, because of our lived experience, we have things that seem on the surface to be very progressive mm-hmm. or mainline, um, a desire for social justice concerns and racial equality, mm-hmm. a concern for women's issues, voting rights mm-hmm. issues. And so it's really difficult in a predominantly white church as a black American because if I'm with conservative evangelicals where we may worship similarly, there may be language that I understand mm-hmm. in terms of salvation, the lost, um, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I'm dealing with people who certainly vote differently than I do, who um, use uh language in their conversations about culture that is um, ignorant and uh, offensive, mm-hmm. or I can be with progressives who will march with me or do things that, from a social justice standpoint, make sense, but often don't have the same religious mm-hmm. fervor as I do. Um, but then also even don't always back up their social justice progressive rhetoric with mm-hmm. actual action. And so even in those senses, we're compartmentalized and, and have this sort of false dichotomy. Um, so where my wife and I, the first time we ever felt at home in a church of the brethren mm-hmm. was when we went to Puerto Rico. And we're worshiping there. Um, We're not Puerto Ricans. We're not even Hispanic. But being in a place in which there was this evangelicalism, this Pentecostalism, Mm -hmm. accompanied with a strong, strong witness to the social gospel, to social justice Mm -hmm. concerns, that's where I think most black and Hispanic people are. And that there's not really room for that in the Church of the Brethren unless we're in black churches of the Brethren or Hispanic churches of the Brethren. Even if you're just a white, Germanic, cradle brethren who went to camp and has the right last name that you can play the name game with, Mm -hmm. if if that church that you love is going to sustain itself, is going to succeed, is going to be relevant in the future for your children and their children, the church needs to learn how to to change. And the seminary has to teach our students how we're going to minister in this multi-ethnic world. We have have to do better than this um, just from a pragmatic standpoint because learning how to minister to white people in the country who've been brethren all their lives isn't going to cut it anymore. Not that there's not a place for that. Those people are the church and will remain the church. But the church also is bigger than that. At least if the church is going to succeed, it's got to be bigger than that. Yeah, so unless we're, we're learning how to do ministry with people who clap on the different beat 
languages, whether that's a different known language like Spanish mm-hmm. or different um, language. I mean, in the black church, black people speak differently than right. white people. That's just a reality, you know. Um, and because many blacks and Hispanics are influenced by global Pentecostalism, people need to learn how to be with people that speak in unknown angelic languages. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of things that need to be learned. Um, I mean, why the camp culture is not um, always hospitable to blacks and Hispanics, to people of lower income. There's all sorts of things. Um, And I know Gimbia and and, and others who are working at this, but the whole we all need to be working at this. So it sort of sounds like the biggest issue at this point is almost education and people taking responsibility to educate themselves. Does that seem fair? I think that that's fair. I think most people are ignorant and are are ignorant willfully. I think that we can't be in a place in which we have time for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think beyond education, there needs to be accountability. It's not enough just to know. Mm-hmm. Certainly education is the foundation. We need to know the historical context. We need to know where the demographics are heading. We need to know how to minister in new ways given those things. But accountability, I think, has to be up there just as importantly mm-hmm. um, and given just as much preference and priority on paper, the Church of the Brethren is awesome. Mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, my, theologically, I'm probably most close to, like, a progressive Pentecostal in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably you could say the same about a lot of Black and Hispanic Christians, whether they self-identify that way or not. You know, many brethren may not see um, the connections between this idea of progressive Pentecostalism and the Church of the Brethren um, readily, but Pentecostals are pietists, like Methodists and Brethren are. Um, Brethren are not just Anabaptists like Mennonites are, but are are Anabaptist and pietist, um, in fact, radical pietists. Um, And so there's the connection on that pietist piece, but also progressives, um, or those a part of the so-called Christian left, have certainly been influenced by Anabaptists, their emphasis on simplicity, community, and social justice. But on paper, a lot of what the Church of the Brethren believes is what I believe. But in my lived experience, nearly nothing has been what I see on on paper. Mm -hmm what I I vision for this church and its truest self. Um, And that's really, that's really sad and and deeply troubling. Yeah. Shane, thank you so much. So that was Shane Petty. And if you want to connect with Shane, um, he's invited anyone who wants to further the conversation to go ahead and friend him on Facebook so you can connect with him that way. He's also a contributing editor of the Brethren Life and Thought blog. Um, so that's also a great place to go if you want to check out more of Shane's work. So that's it for today. We'll be releasing a part two episode in a couple of weeks, so definitely check that out. 
Um, if you have thoughts or ideas after listening to this that you want to share with On Earth Peace, we would love to hear from you. So go ahead and post on our Facebook page, um, or you can email me at youthretreats at onearthpeace.org. Um, thanks so much for listening. Drew and Shane certainly challenged me to think about the privilege I take for granted in the Church of the Brethren. What's your experience on your school campus or work environment? Regardless of how much or how little you know about Brethren and Mennonite history, you probably know that these movements of Christians began on the margins of the Christianity of the day, as Drew Hart says. But now, they are predominantly white denominations, at least in North America. Do you benefit from white privilege? What impact does racism have on your life or in your town? What race are the leaders of your home church? And how has that defined your idea of following Jesus? Shane points to the disconnect between types of Christians beyond the Church of the Brethren, the typical black Christian experience and the progressive Christian interest in social justice seem to stand separate. While conservative evangelicals are fired up for Christ and progressives are passionate for social justice, but where are the Christians who hold both passions for Christ and justice? I know I looked on my bookshelf after Drew asked me to, and he was right. Most of the books in my church office are written by white men, with a small section of a dozen or so women authors. I'm going to be paying attention to whom I listen to and why from now on. Maybe I will be able to open my eyes to the places my life is racially managed. I know that following Jesus is never an easy path. His disciples found that out very quickly. Even Jesus said that foxes have holes, but he often had no place to lay his head. I have to be willing to feel uncomfortable and awkward, as Drew said, in order to risk the engagement I need to be a radical Jesus-following Christian. Once again, Jesus is challenging us through the words of these two brothers in Sarah's interviews to hear again his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I know God will bless our hunger for racial justice and will fill us with the courage we need to see the truth and act. So go forth, Dunker Punks, and be the change you want to see in the world. I want to thank Sarah Ullam-Minnick for these wonderful interviews and appreciate Drew Hart and Shane Petty's open and honest sharing for the Dunker Punk podcast audience. Dunker Punks are inspired by Jesus' upside-down, uncommon wisdom as found in the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't read it lately, you can find it in the Bible's New Testament in Matthew chapters 5-7. through Jared McKenna's sermon at National Youth Conference inspired the Dunker Punk movement. You can read more at dunkerpunks.com, and you can find a log of Dunker Punk podcast episodes on the show page at arlingtoncobb.org dpp. You can find calls to action and share your thoughts on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash dunkerpunkspod. You get episode reminders on Snapchat and follow our new Twitter feed. Our username for both is dunkerpunkspod. The Dunker Punks podcast is a collaboration amongst a dozen or so contributors sharing encouragement for your faith journey. I produce the show along with Suzanne Lay, who is also our audio editor. Jacob Krauss is our talented music producer. We've got extra episodes in store for you over the next couple of weeks. Our next full-length episode posts at the end of January. 
Dana Casal will talk about following Jesus while living under empire. Keep an eye out for a mid-month bonus episode with Dylan Del Haro on the good news of Jesus' blessing to all. And stay tuned for Sarah's part two episode in early February. Until the next audio, I pray that God will surround you with the light of truth, the courage to listen to everyone, and the wisdom to discern the Jesus way and live it. Amen, Dunker Punks. Make it so. Countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lovers.